Welcome to the IPX True North Podcast, where we connect people, processes, and tools. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. Today, we're going to be talking about the cost of corrective actions and what it might look like in your organization. We have Michael Benning, the Executive Director of True North Enterprise Calibration, and Ken Black, the Chief of IPX Workforce Academy with us. Ken, I would love for you uh, to just share a little bit about what you do with IPX and even about your backstory, if you would. I've been associated with um, IPX since before it was IPX, when it was the Institute of Configuration Management. actually working with Vince Guest at the very beginning. We, we kind of put this thing together um, as a team and it's progressed dramatically in, in the 30 plus years that we've been doing this. Um, my role at IPX today is the uh, chief of the IPX Workforce Academy. Uh, in that role, my main objective, my main uh, deliverables uh, is course materials working on uh, making uh, improvements or enhancements to existing courses, as well as laying out the roadmap and generating new training materials for um, new subjects and topics that we haven't talked about before that go beyond traditional configuration management. So to me, that's the really exciting part. I mean, I love teaching. I've been been teaching the CM2 since it was birthed. Uh, It is a passion. But I got to tell you, getting into the course development has really been uh, exciting for me. And, uh, and that's kind of where I am right now, actually working on new courses. So Awesome. That's cool. That's really neat. Just kind of being able to kind of brainstorm ideas for courses and then have them be built and get them out there is, is probably a neat experience. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'll give you a great example. When, uh, when something comes up, uh, some new idea that I am, mm-hmm. I, I'm not <laughs> the expert, right? So I have to do a lot of research and studying mm-hmm. and um, it's really kind of neat. Uh, but when you start digging into it, you start doing the research and you start finding all this stuff. It's like, man, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I thought, I thought that course came out, uh, came out really, really well. So, and, and, and Michael, I would love to transition over to you and, and kind of what you do with IPX for those who don't know. Um, yeah, so I've, I've got about 25 plus years um, uh, out there in industry, and uh, I'm predominantly on the client side uh, with IPX. And uh, when I'm not interacting with clients, I'm uh, learning as much as I can uh, from Ken. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And so, yeah, we're all going to learn a lot from Ken probably today. We're going to be talking about just that cost of corrective action. Um, and I guess to get us on the, the right foot for those who might not know Ken, what is your definition or what's the definition of what corrective action is? Oh, that's really, that's really a great question, Chris, because I bet you if you talk to 10 different people, you would get 10 different answers. Um, and, you know, the reason for that, I believe that the reason there are so many different opinions about what corrective action is, um, it's based on what does the organization measure in terms of, of waste, right? Corrective action is it generates waste or it eliminates the generation of waste, but the elimination of the generation of waste increases the cost of whatever it is the organization is doing. And those are pretty 
typical things to be measured as corrective action. What is our scrap rate, right? How much rework do we do? Uh, and those kinds of things, excess uh, warranty claims or customer complaints, or um, in some industries we have CAPAs, you know, like corrective action, preventive action. Uh, and those are the kind of things that are tangible, that are easy to get your arms around and measure. And when that's what the organization is doing, that's their definition. What's corrective action? It's what we're spending on this batch of things that I just mentioned. Unfortunately, most organizations underestimate um, what's actually being spent on corrective action. So much of the corrective action is, uh, I want to say, hidden. Mm. And what I mean by hidden is it's not recognized as corrective action, right? If, uh, if Michael is, is looking for a, a, a document and he goes to the place where the document is supposed to be and it's not there, well, he's immediately thrown into corrective action, right? It's not measured, but he is spending his time and energy now trying to find that missing or misplaced document. So he'll, he'll perhaps he'll go find out, well, who's the last person that checked it out? And he'll go do research and find out who that was. And he'll go talk to that person, right? So now two people are involved in this discussion about the document that cannot be found. And that person says, well, I, I'm sure I put it right back where it was supposed to be. So the two of them go and it just, it just grows. Mm. And, you know, any time, and you see this in our course materials, any time is being spent in a state of uncertainty, or people are having to ask questions for clarity, or they're having to make guesses because the information being provided is open to interpretation. That is, that's all corrective action, but how does an organization measure that? Mm. And the answer is they don't. Most organizations don't measure it. So I know that's a, that's a lot of words to answer the question of what is it? Um, again, I think it's much more than what most organizations actually think. You know, yeah. if you if you were to approach a senior leader in probably any major company and tell them, I'd like to take a few minutes and talk to you about corrective action. Well, immediately in their mind, they know what you want to talk about. You want to talk about scrap loss. You want to talk about waste. You want to talk about rework, those tangible things. In CM2, we don't talk corrective action as much as we talk about intervention resource expenditure. Intervention resource expenditure is way more than traditional corrective action. That's okay. the big difference. Gotcha. So within these organizations, and, and Michael, I'll let you add to it uh, or start off this question. Um, so in many organizations, they could have corrective actions going on but not recognize it because it's kind of tied into their everyday, like what they're used to is that. So how do you, how can you talk Michael um, to the culture of kind of the firefighting within these organizations? Yeah. So maybe first, Chris, maybe I just want to pick up on something that uh, you can't talk about, you know, he characterized it as waste and, and mm. it is, you know, I might just go a step further and, you know, for for lean experts out there, right? You this is this is classic overprocessing, right? It is not only waste, but it's the worst form of waste, right? It's it's got all of the other categories of waste 
um, sort of sort of built in. Um, so you know, it's bad. I think you know, picking up, going back to your question, I think you know, um, Ken mentioned um, measurement, you know, and and what are we measuring, and how do you measure corrective action, and I think. You know, that is, for me, one of the first telltale signs of a culture of corrective action uh, in, in, in the organization and in the culture of many of the clients that we work with. Um, when clients aren't measuring that or even attempting to measure that or, or process performance, I think that is a, a clear indicator uh, of a culture of, of corrective action. Yeah, that's the uh, stick your head in the sand approach, right? If I can't see it, then it's not real. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, I'm sure that within these organizations, within business, there are other definitions, terms for corrective action. I know you kind of hit on some earlier. Are there, are there uh, some other main ones that people might have heard that is still pertaining to corrective action, but is just a different name? Yeah, for me. I would call it the the opposite of operational excellence. That's a good term for it. Yeah, that is that is true. And and you know all of the all those big business initiatives that that are going around like uh, Six Sigma, Lean, um, first time quality. I mean, you can come up with all the names of these different things. They're all they're all focused on one thing. That's the elimination of waste. That's to to get your costs down to the minimum that would provide the quality output that your organization is looking for. And all of that waste, however you want to categorize it, whatever you want to call it, um, it falls into what we call intervention resource expenditure. Intervention resource expenditure can be measured in a lot of different ways, you know, in how many, how many um, equivalent heads of energy are we spending? How much equivalent dollars are we spending? We actually have a workshop in one of our classes where we let the students uh, develop a scenario within their own work environment where they identify areas that they know are, as we call them, intervention resource expenditures. And then we let them make that list, quantify it, turn it into a percentage of energy on a weekly basis. And then we throw some, some factors in there for a company of a certain size with a certain salary average and let them calculate what that company would be losing on an annual basis just on intervention resource expenditure. Um, so this is not something that we give them. We don't give them the, the how much energy are you spending? What's the percentage? They're developing it themselves. And the results, Chris, the results of that workshop, every single time we do it, people are absolutely blown away. Absolutely blown away. I, I can imagine because you're, you're creating a different viewpoint on it. Uh, and, and so with that, because you, you hear all the time um, that leaders, people who are over the organization, uh, celebrating or, or giving accolades to people who kind of these firefighters that in the putting out all these different things, you know, from the, cause it, wow, you saved us that, Hey, you got that done. Good job. But <laughs> with what program you're implementing there, those workshops that's showing them that they need to change those behaviors 
uh, yeah. culture to drive it, to do it right the first time. So how can yeah, it's, that going out with leadership and in, in organizations? Absolutely. It's actually showing what Michael was just talking about, the opposite of organizational excellence. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty mind blowing. You know, you're talking about the firefighting and mm-hmm. organizations living in that environment, you know, firefighting, and this is what I tell every organization I've ever worked with. Firefighting is not a problem. Firefighting is a symptom of a lot of other problems, right? And we firefight when something didn't go as expected. Something went wrong. So we're either over budget, we're behind schedule, uh, we haven't met the quality level. Something, you know, something is is in need of repair, in need of fix. And when we, when we have to go fix something, automatically it becomes hot. Mm. So when we talk about what are the symptoms for an organization, how do, we, how do you know if an organization is in corrective action mode? Well, there's a lot of things you can look at. Um, one being, well, we just talked about, uh, what's your scrap rate? Another one is how much stuff do you have to do over again? Your failure to achieve first pass success is an indication that something is wrong. You know, everybody talks about consistent conformance, and there's all kinds of initiatives out there to tell you uh, you need to go get consistent conformance, but nobody tells you what that means. They tell you that it means you get it right, not just the first time, but every time, right? But in order to achieve consistent conformance, there's only one possible way to do that. And that's to define your processes in such a way that when the processes are followed, the result has no choice but to conform. So what you have then is you have predictable process output. Gotcha. If you have any variability caused by all these things that we're talking about, the predictability of the process erodes. And once that happens, as process predictability goes down, intervention resource expenditure goes up. Hey, but guys, I want to I want to go back if I can, just one second. You know, we talked about Ken. Ken's right. You know, we talk about the things that we can measure, but you know, there's some really important and impactful things that we can't measure, or at least extremely difficult uh, to measure. And I'm talking about, um, and these are really impactful. I'm talking about things like opportunity cost. What gets deferred? Uh, typically, it's those product and process uh, innovation ideas and improvement ideas that get deferred uh, because we're too busy firefighting. I, th- I would submit those are those are much more impactful things. What about the impact uh, to culture that this insidious sort of uh, corrective action becomes how we work? Right, that is that is a, a cancer uh, in the culture. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing too, Michael. I'm gonna play right off of what you uh, what you just mentioned. The impact of corrective action is terribly underestimated. Um, something goes wrong, and we have to throw resources at it to go fix it, or firefighting, or put a tiger team together. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, But what happens then is work that has to be done over again is not work that was planned, right? So when we do our resource planning, we do our output scheduling, we're doing it all based on the premise of first pass yield, first pass success. 
when it doesn't turn out that way and we have to take that work back to the work center to do it over again, to Michael's point, that work center has moved on. They're working on their next whatever it is. But now here comes this redo. And of course, because it's a redo, it's hot. It's on priority. So the work that the work center should be working on today gets pushed off to the side so they can address this hot rework or redo. Well, by the time they finish that one, the work that they should have been working on is now late. So it's hot and it's insidious. I mean, that it just grows and it's, it's all unplanned. We don't, we don't set our resource plans. We don't set our schedules uh, on failure. We do it based on success. And when failure is the result instead of success, it's, it's tumultuous. It's, it creates turmoil. So with that, so we have all these, these corrective actions that are happen to take place in a lot of organizations. When I was in the, um, when I was with a previous organization in the automobile manufacturing uh, sector, man, scraps, no. rebuilds, all that. And I'm like, every second is like millions of dollars. And I'm like, wow. So, so what? What initial steps can organizations do to begin to reduce these corrective actions? Well, boy, you know what, uh, and Michael, you you really you really made a great comment a little while ago that when an organization has been in the corrective action mode for a very long time, it becomes uh, the normal way of working, uh, and and people don't see it as a problem; they see it as normal business. Right, uh, great, a great story. I was working with a company several years ago that while I was on site, uh, they received an award from one of their customers. And they were so proud, man. They were just, they, they were just prancing around with that award. What the award was, it was a congratulatory plaque for this company's ability to react quickly to problems. And they, they came and showed me the plaque and they were all, you know, just super jazzed. And I said, you know, guys, that's really a, a backhanded compliment, right? Congratulations on being good at solving the problems that you create. How about a plaque that says, congratulations, I'm not creating any problems. And I guess they were a little upset that I, <laughs> had that perspective on it, but that's what I'm talking about, right? When, when the when the behavior is so normalized that it's expected behavior, then we have a serious problem uh, because now corrective action isn't seen as corrective action; it's just simply seen as, oh, we got some more priority work. Now, if you want to look at symptoms for corrective action, I'll tell you some symptoms: organizations that have a high percentage of their workload running on priority. Hmm. That's a symptom. Organizations that have a high uh, usage of deviations and waivers, that's a symptom. Organizations that have a high volume of corrective action changes, um, those are all symptoms. Uh, organizations that typically can't get their normal work done in a normal work day, right? Um, 
those are all symptoms of organizations that have underlying deep-rooted problems that are part of what we call intervention resource expenditure. But again, and Michael just nailed it, if the organization is accepting operating in that mode as standard business practice, then it's like Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't admit that you have the problem, then you're not going to get it solved. Absolutely. And so I know IPX uses a control framework called CM2, and we, you had alluded and mentioned it previously. And those principles um, could implementing some of those help reduce corrective action. Oh yeah, big time, My, Michael. You wanna you wanna grab that one first? Um, sure, Ken. Um, yeah, following you is a little bit challenging, so maybe <laughs> first. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, of course, the answer is yes. And I think, you know, Ken said something that, you know, is is worth repeating. And I think, you know, these corrective actions, these are, um, you know, a process failure, right? I mean, it's important to remember a well-defined process that's well-executed works every time, right? Yep. So I think, you know, yep. that's where it begins is understanding, measuring, and then understanding, finding a root cause, and then correcting those things and within the process, uh, ensuring that people are following it and measuring that conformance to process, those incremental steps forward um, will eliminate corrective action. Yeah, and you know, with uh, the beautiful thing about the CM2, Chris, is it starts at the beginning. I know that sounds kind of odd, right? You start at the beginning. Well, of course you do. Well, when you're talking about configuration management, starting at the beginning means going all the way back to the, to the drivers, the source of the initial requirements. And um, you know the, the highest level set of requirements that an organization has to um, adhere to or meet are externally generated to the company. They come from market demands, they come from customer contracts, they come from uh, regulatory agencies, but all of these requirements have to be brought into the company, brought into the organization, and, and addressed. So with CM2, we start at the very beginning with our eight-step development process. And with that process, step number one is to understand and make sure that they are clear, concise, and valid, all those external requirements. So when we generate our highest level internal requirement data sets, that they properly represent what those external requirements are. Um, you know, there's a, a great indication an organization uh, can look at to decide how good are we at translating and interpreting those external requirements. And that is, do we ever make a delivery to the customer where the customer says, well, that's not what I wanted, or that's not what I ordered, or that's not what I expected? When you hear those comments, that tells you that our ability to interpret and translate those external requirements and successfully capture them in our internal data sets is broken. Mm. And that's where it starts. Once that happens, you imagine the customer says, that's not what I wanted. What happens to the organization? Chaos, right? We're right back into that massive corrective action because now we have to go fix whatever it is that, that uh, did not come out right. So you want to eliminate or reduce corrective action, you have to go back to the beginning. 
you have to start with the first step of development. And we need to refocus what is the what is the goal of our development process? And in CM2, we know that for us, the output from development are data sets that will support all of the life cycle phases of the deliverable. And those data sets are clear, concise, and valid. Can't be misinterpreted. There's no um, translations or interpretations that are going to be required. And to Michael's point, if followed, process is going to give you exactly what it should be giving you. Um, now, there's a lot of other things that we talk about, but probably two of them, I think, my favorite and, and biggest elements that would help an organization is establishing proper ownership mm. of all the data sets. Every document that an organization has should have assigned owners. It should have an assigned creator and one or more designated users. And they're the ones who are accountable. Boy, now there's a word for you, Chris, accountable. Now, one of the things that I see and, and have seen for, for quite some time now in industry is the lack of individual accountability. Uh, if you want an organization to really become world-class, you want them to really become good, you've got to get that, that feeling of ownership. That's how you get accountability. You give people a feeling of ownership. What better way to give people a feeling of ownership than to give them a designation Mm. as either an assigned creator or a designated user, and then make them understand you are accountable for the quality of this information set. Um, and then the other thing I think that would be really cool for an organization if they don't have one is to put in the, the fast track change process. You know, one of the things that um, cause organizations to stay in the corrective action mode, even when they recognize they have an issue, uh, is the difficulty in making changes. If uh, if the change process is uh, clunky, it's bureaucratic, it's it's hard, it's painful, uh, then there's no incentive for anybody to go fix the things that we know need to be fixed. It's mm. it's it's a turnoff. I worked with a company a while back. They actually asked me to come join a workshop that they were that they were conducting, and they had put a cross-functional team together and their goal was to fix their change process. And they asked me to come in, not to, not to be a team member, just to be a, in your role, right? Just to keep them from going off into the weeds, bring them back on track. One of the first things they did the first morning was they decided to come up with a charter. What is the charter of this team? Why? Why are we here? What is our goal? And I was so pleased. I have to, I have, of course, have to tell you that they were CM2 grads, most of them on the team. So, but what was really cool, Chris, their charter was to turn their company's change process into a competitive advantage. Mm, that's that's awesome. their written charter. I loved it. I and, it. and and you mentioned the, so they were a lot of them were CM2 grads. So it sounds like and and Michael, I'll ask you first on this. It sounds like the IPX um, can really help organizations kickstart their reduced corrective action initiative, right? Would you say that's plausible? 
Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, I think, you know, I want to go back to something Ken said, you know, he talked a little bit about ownership and I mm. think, you know, I think the number one area that, that, that I see working with clients where they struggle is, is that the interfaces, right? The functional interfaces, the business interfaces and ownership is, is key and having that um, ownership from end to end. And I think that is one of the real strengths of the, of the CM2 control framework is that it uh, addresses that not only from a process perspective, but from an organizational perspective as well. And Ken talked a little bit about creators and users, and that's that's obviously a, a big part of it. Okay. So I think that's, go ahead, Ken. Yeah, I was gonna say that, uh, you know, that interface that Michael was talking about, there's a, uh, it's an exercise that I conduct when I, when I do classes, course four in particular, where we're talking about the change process. And, and, and one of the key things to a successful change process is the ability to conduct an enterprise change assessment. So when Michael talks about interfaces between the, the product side of the business and the business side of the business, uh, that is really, really a soft spot in most organizations. When we talk about, I'll give you a very simple example. When we talk about making a, a change to a physical item in manufacturing, most organizations, when they do a, a technical review is what most of them call it, it's simply to look at the technical impact of the change, right? Uh, so this little exercise that I run in the class is, uh, imagine in manufacturing, we have two pieces of metal that are bolted together, and there's four bolts, four bolts and nuts and washers that put this, these two pieces together. And somebody in manufacturing says, well, you know what? Why are we doing that? Why don't we just weld these things together? So they submit a change request to change the process from bolting these things together to welding them. The little exercise that I run in my class is I ask the class, all right, let's go up to the whiteboard. Let's make a list. Every area of the business that could be impacted by this change. And what you find out, oh, my gosh, Chris, I mean, I think the biggest list I came up, I didn't come up with, but the biggest list that came out of the class, like 32 different impacts and everything from, well, you know what? What if we've never welded before? That means we don't have any welder job descriptions. So now HR has to be involved. Oh, now that means we don't have any salary grades for welders. That means finance has to be involved. Uh, we don't know where we're going to put the welding equipment on the factory floor. So now the, the facilities environment has to be involved. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, there are these interfaces that Michael was talking about between the product side of the business and the business side of the business. And if we don't see those, we're going to have a lot of issues and we'll continue to have issues. One of the, one of the strengths of the CM2 model, one of my all-time favorite elements within CM2 is the linkages that we talk about. Right. Making sure that we have linkages of everything. We link items to items to create structures, we link items to data sets to create relationships, we link data sets to owners, we release primary data sets to subordinate or enabling data sets. We, we link tools and equipment, we link facilities, we link business processes. An organization that has great 
linkages has great visibility. And with that comes the ability to identify those areas that, you know, hey, there's a soft spot. We can go beef that one up. But you know, I got I got to back up a second though, because I meant to comment on something that, that Michael mentioned earlier that I mm-hmm. thought was absolutely profound. And that is when an organization is in that quagmire of collective action, when there is so much energy being spent as intervention resources, there's no energy left over to do improvements. That's a good that's point. A, that's that's huge. Yeah, that is a good point. And so with I mean, with IPX, with CM2, obviously you've, you've shown right there that people who've gone through these programs who have allowed IPX to show them how to see all the different pieces of corrective action, the benefit it is. So where, uh, one, where can people find or, or connect with you both to, um, to just pick your brain? And then where can people go to find out more about IPX, CM2, and corrective action? I, yeah, they should do what I do, and that's call Ken. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, the best thing, of course, if, if anybody is familiar with CM2, they already, they already have that. If you're not familiar with it and you want to be familiarized, uh, go to our website. Mm. Go to uh, ipxhq.com. And everything that, that, that you would like to know about us and, and our offerings and our certifications and um, our skill sets. By the way, and I and I say this in all honesty. It's going to sound like, oh yeah, right. You have to say that, but <laughs> I don't say anything that uh, that I don't believe. And I have to tell you, Chris, in in all of my years in industry and all the organizations that I worked with and all the groups that I've been associated with, I have never had the privilege to be involved with such an amazing team of uh, cross-functional expertise that we have at IPX. The, the team is, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away. I, I'm totally blown away. They're, they're amazing. It's a, it's a great group and I, and I love working with them. And what's really cool is they love working with you. Mm. So any organization that, that that would like some assistance in anything that they're trying to do. I mean, we can go from everything from just uh, topic to topic um, support all the way up to full program management of a transformation project, everything in between. Awesome. Uh, and Michael is a classic example. He's, you know, he's one of the best. So yeah, just go to the website. Uh, everything you can see is there. Um, you can contact if you want to email me, Ken at ipxhq.com but yeah and, and we're always we're always there we're always willing to help perfect yeah guys definitely check it out get some good information there um, and start really taking action to reduce your corrective actions in your organizations and before we do say goodbye though uh just want to end on a, on a fun note uh light lighten the mood a little bit especially with everything going on in the world so we got a, a fun question for both of you ken and michael who is your favorite band well, Queen has to rank right up there. They're incredible. I was actually on a business trip to Germany a few years ago, and uh, it was a Saturday afternoon. I was in the in the hotel. This guy came in and sat down, and we struck up a conversation. And he turned out to be the uh, 
and lead guitarist and lead, lead singer for Nazareth. They were doing a concert uh, and we just hit it off and he invited me to join the band. So I rode with the band to the concert, got backstage passes and so wow. they're, they're not You're the, they're roadie not the now. big name, but it was fun. Nazareth's was fun. hair of the dog, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Well, normally I'd have to go with uh, with the boss, Springsteen. Um, oh, yeah. Today I'm looking out at uh, six plus inches of snow. So I'm going to go with Jimmy Buffett today. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I love Michael. I love Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, those are some yeah, good choices. I'd agree with those. ACDC has been recently a lot of ACDC and and always the Beatles. Always, I've just oh, always en- always enjoyed the Beatles. So uh, me too. Love the Beatles. I got all their albums. All those oldies, oldies and always goodies. So that's right. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for for being on uh, the IPX True North podcast to share about corrective action and how organizations can start kind of making a difference. Thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe and review the show. And for more information on IPX, visit IPXHQ.com.